This is not an episode about Willie Nelson, though that is him singing on this bootleg recording. No, this is a story about the gentleman playing harmonica with Willie Nelson at that concert. He's an amateur musician named James Allison, or as most people call him, Jim. He calls me Doc now, because I've played with him a lot of times. So. Have you talked to him since you won the Nobel Prize? No. I've played with him, but I haven't really he talked. He probably hasn't played with a Nobel Prize winner before. I don't think so, really. <laughs> yeah. Yep, Jim Allison, Dr. Jim Allison, is a biochemist, an immunologist, and a winner of the 2018 Nobel Prize. And yes, of course, playing with Willie Nelson has been one of the highlights of his life. But winning the Nobel for developing an entirely new cancer treatment that has saved hundreds of thousands of lives and counting? Well, there's no topping that. Jim Allison and the key discovery that opened the door for successful immunotherapy on this episode of What It Takes, a podcast about passion, vision, and perseverance from the Academy of Achievement. I'm Alice Winkler. Adam A., this child is gifted. And I heard that enough that I started to believe it. If you have the opportunity, not a perfect opportunity, and you don't take it, you may never have another chance. It all was so clear. It, it was just like the picture started to form itself. There was no way in which a lie could prevail over the truth. Darkness over light, death over life. Every day I wake up and decide, today I'm going to love my life. Decide. 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 My advice is, if they're going to break your leg once when you go in that place, stay out of there. <laughs> and then along come these differential experiences that you don't look for, you don't plan for, but boy, you better not miss them. Jim Allison is a serious, hardworking guy. He came up with a new treatment for cancer, for goodness sake. But he likes to play hard, too, as he will tell you. The harmonica should have given you one hint on that front. He actually plays and sings in two all-scientist bands. The bigger of the two, the one with the horn section, is called the Checkpoints. They play mostly at medical conferences, and do note that name, the Checkpoints, because its significance will become clear a little later in this episode. Do you have a favorite song that the band plays? Well, there's several. My favorite is, is uh, King Bee. I mean, I like, I like Muddy Waters. How does that go? How does that go? Yeah, the word's a little rough, but it's, it's I'm a King Bee buzzing around your hive. You know? so I'm a King Bee baby buzzing around your hive. Together we can make honey, baby. Let me inside. <laughs> you know, then it goes from there. Mary Jordan, Washington Post correspondent by day, is the person who interviewed Jim Allison for the Academy of Achievement in the fall of 2019. Mary warmed up with some questions about music before hitting the hard science, and she really wanted to get to the bottom of the Willie Nelson story. Turns out he first played with Willie long before his star turn in cancer research. 
It was in the 1970s, and he was doing a postdoc in San Diego at the Scripps Clinic, playing music two nights a week at a local club. One day, Willie Nelson came through town for a party thrown for him by Columbia Records. One of the policemen that I knew through the band told me about this party because they were providing security for it. And he said, you want to come? I'll get you in. So I crashed the party and went up to Willie. And, so the policeman helped the doctor crash the party for Willie Nelson. Yeah. And so, <laughs> so anyway, so I, after, you know, after it finished, I mean, it was Tammy Wynette and, and I, don't, I don't remember who all was there, Waylon Jennings, I think. And, just each did a couple of songs and tribute, then Willie finished it. And then I went up and just introduced myself and said, hey, I've seen you a hundred times in Austin. Anyway, it's so strange because he, you know, he just said, oh, you live here? And I said, yeah. And he says, well, I got tomorrow night off and I'd like to play some music. You know, someplace I can pick, you know, because he had his, he had his uh, drummer and his bass player with him. And so I said, sure, it's, it's amateur night down at the Stingery, and, uh, you know, which is the bar I played at. I was supposed to play, sit in with a singer that, the next night. You brought Willie Nelson to amateur night? Yeah. <laughs> the next night, so we piled into my Volkswagen bus, you know, and drove up. We, we were, he was in San Diego, actually, and we were in Encinitas, North County, and so we drove up to the Stingeray and went in, and, and as luck would have it, this guy I was supposed to sing with was singing one of his songs, Blue Eyes Crying in the Rain, and, uh, and I walked in with Willie, and this guy just about faints, you know. And, after a while, you know, there were about eight people in this club, you know, and so Willie got up with his bass player, his drummer. I had a big double reed harmonica. I did one, you know, one song with him and then sat down and they just started playing. He played for about three hours and it was pre, this is 70 something, this is pre cell phone days, but there was, I'll never forget, there was one payphone on the wall and people kept calling by the, you know, by the time Willie got really cranky and the place was packed. A number of years later, Willie Nelson's actual harmonica player, Mickey Raphael, read an article about Jim Allison's research. The article mentioned that Allison was a huge Willie Nelson fan and had once even gotten to play with him. And so I got an email from this guy that just said, uh, hey, you know, I know the work you're doing and anytime you want to play this, come and sit in. At first, the offer was too intimidating, but the two harmonica players became email friends, and eventually, Jim Allison took him up on the offer several times. Mary asked Jim Allison, when he's on stage, what is it he thinks about? Well, most of the time, it's, God, don't let me blow the next note, you know. <laughs> One time I was playing Austin City Limits. They invited me to play with Willie at Austin City Limits, which was this huge festival. There were 70,000 people in the audience, and uh, so I went out and played uh, this, at the time it was Willie's hottest song, Roll Me Up and Smoke Me When I'm Gone, you know, and uh, so I was to play the harmonica lead on that with Mickey. I mean, he was going to play one, I was going to play another, and I just, I blew a note in the middle of it, you know, I was so pissed off. And so we were walking back to the, to his, Mickey's bus, you know, I said, Jesus, I can't believe I did that. He said, Jim, 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 you're the scientist. I'm the harmonica player. <laughs> I want you to make mistakes playing harmonica. I don't want you to make mistakes. You just keep in mind what you're supposed to be doing. You're just having fun here. You know, don't take this stuff seriously. But Jim Allison is pretty driven, and for him, these two pursuits, research and music, aren't entirely different. With, with the band and, and playing, it's just something, you know, it's, uh, it's a little bit like 
doing science, but not, I mean, very different in a way, but similar in that everybody, you know, you got all these guys and, and they're doing their own stuff, you know, and then, then you get together. And when it's all clicking, it's amazing. <laughs> when it's all clicking, so let's talk about science. When did you first know you wanted to be a scientist? I'd say by the time I was about eighth, eighth grade, <laughs> I knew I either wanted to be a scientist or, or a doctor. But I was sort of leaning. I mean, I didn't really know what science was then, of course. He knew enough, though. He had a chemistry set and a microscope, and he lived on the edge of a town I love the name of, Alice, Texas, where he often went into the woods to collect frogs and other things, which he would dissect when he got back home. I, I, I was alone a lot, you know, after my mom died. Uh, you know, my dad, anyway, I spent a lot of time alone. I, I uh, was lucky enough to have some counselors who sent me to Austin during the summers to family there's almost a foster family I stayed with and would attend classes in UT Austin. That was my escape, you know, I kind of got to see more. It's not that Alice was a terrible place with one, except they wouldn't teach evolution in the high school. That was a big problem. Case in point, I had this teacher who was fantastic, one of the best. He could make math, physics, chemistry. God was one of the best teacher I'd ever had. Biology, nothing. You know, and they saved biology for last in Texas. By then, by the time I was coming up to take it, I'd, I'd experienced biology. I'd actually gotten in a special program, worked in a lab, you know, research lab at UT Austin one summer after my junior year in high school. And, and I'd read, about, you know, read Darwin, I read, and, and I'm not particularly religious, but I don't see the, I just don't see a problem. But, but, I, but I did see a problem with that, because I said, you can't, you can't teach biology without ideas of Darwin anymore and teach physics without the ideas of Newton. I mean, you, how do you make any sense of it? Do you believe in God? Yeah, I guess so. I mean, I don't know. I don't believe he's running everything all the time. I mean, but maybe, I don't know who created anything. I mean, I, maybe, I mean, <laughs> I don't know how things started. I mean, I mean, to me, that's not relevant. To, I mean, we're supposed to do what we're supposed to do, right? I mean. What is it we're supposed to do? Just, I, I think it's just do good, you know. I think every person just has an obligation to pass through the world and make it a better place, not just for you, but for other people as well. I mean, that's kind of your obligation. Anyway, but I, I, did a big, I got a big problem in high school because I refused to take the course. And, uh, so you refused to take the course because? They didn't teach evolution. And what happened when you refused it? Well, they told me I wasn't going to finish high school. I couldn't get my degree. And I said, well, what are we going to do? His dad, who was a country doctor, backed him up. And they somehow worked it out with the school system. Though Mr. O'Rear, that science teacher who was teaching him physics at the time, made life pretty unpleasant for the remainder of the year. What effect do you think it had that you lost your mother when you were young? Uh, well, it was. I mean, that, first of all, it was, it was it was pretty hard. I mean, one of the things that you know I didn't realize so much at the time, but I have since then a lot. I mean, for a long time, is I I really and it, it's it's kind of pretty. Kind of, I don't I don't really have any memories of her except her dying, because I was holding her hand when she died. And uh, although I was you know nine ten ten years old, and I should have, but I don't know. I just before that I just don't 
remember it. And she and, died uh, of cancer. Yeah, she died of lymphoma. I didn't know at the time either because you know people didn't talk about it back then. You know, it was cancer. You know, it's hush hush. And, uh, and she'd be getting radiation therapy for quite a while. And you know, wondered why her, you know she was always her throat was always burned. And so I mean, her brother was diagnosed right after she after she died. Her brother was diagnosed with melanoma. And, time still there I mean there was no there was no cure and so he just said ah you know I would refuse therapy and then a little while after that her oldest brother who was a rancher you know a guy could roll a bull durham with one hand you know on his horse I mean, but he paid for it he got lung cancer but you know he had chemo and I got I saw him occasionally too in, a, in an oxygen tent and you know reduced from this huge full-of-life cowboy this sack of bones, you know, laying in a... Anyway, I got to, you know... See so you the... saw cancer really up close. Yeah. And what, how it was eating people and killing people. And you, you yourself have had cancer. Right? Oh, three times, <laughs> actually. Luckily, my, 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 my brushes with cancer, they've been caught early. I mean, my, I, had, I had prostate cancer. All, I have two brothers. My middle brother died of it. All three of us have prostate cancer, and uh, mine was caught pretty early, but his was so severe and so rapid that uh, normally they probably would have just waited, but at the time, they decided the best thing to do was take it out, even though they could have probably waited a year or two and made a decision. They said, we don't want to take a chance given how fast your brothers progress, so. So when did you decide you know, I want to be a cancer doctor. You know, I get to ask that a lot. I think that was always subliminal or something, you know, but it's not that I said I'm going to cure cancer. I, I, I got into science. I said I, I, want to, I really wanted to find something I was interested in. I mean, when I was in graduate school, I did a, one of my projects I did during my PhD was directly on, on how to treat cancer, but ultimately I decided that I wasn't going to go that route. I got interested in the immune system. Uh, I was trained in chemistry, biochemistry, and I took a course in immunology when I was in college, you know, undergraduate and heard about this paper, actually, that Max Cooper and Jacques Miller, you know, these two guys, I mean, I didn't, then I didn't know who they were, but these guys discovered there were these two components of the immune system, B cells and T cells. And I said, I got to get into this and understand this. This is the coolest thing you know, I've ever heard about. But all this work that's come from theirs, and they're just now getting recognized. The week before this interview, in fact, Max Cooper and Jacques Miller were awarded the Lasker Prize, the most prestigious science prize in the United States, a prize that Jim Allison won in 2015. I wrote Max a long letter, you know, and said, can't believe my work, everybody, you know, springs from yours. Can you explain to the people listening know how your cancer cure works yeah so it's not that hard people have been you know your immune system of course has the ability particularly t-cells to detect when there's something wrong and I say that I mean because that can include infections you know I mean the immune system is very good obviously at detecting when you've got a virus infection or you've got you know bacteria and dealing with them and they know how to deal with the bacteria not hurt your normal cells. And that's, you know, the fascinating thing about them. And the way they do this is recognize not self, which is, sounds like a complicated thing. But basically, they know that 
the immune system has receptors that enables it to figure out when there's something going on inside a cell that shouldn't be there. They don't need to know what it is, but just that it ought not to be there. It's something new. Um, and the way that works is pretty fascinating. There are these receptors generated individually on different T cells. You probably got somewhere around 50 million different ones in you. Maybe maybe 100, nobody knows for sure. But And they each can recognize something different. But when they recognize something that shouldn't be there, like a virus-infected cell, they'll recognize, they can recognize things that a virus causes the cell to make that aren't, you know, aren't you. And they respond to that by expanding from a small number to a lot and then killing it. You know, so you've got these, these tens of millions of different cells so that you've got a diverse repertoire. But of course, then you've got to get hundreds of thousands of, of, you know, one or two or whatever it is that can help you. And that's the cool part of the immune system because that's where the critical switch is. A T cell sees something and it's got to quickly generate 100,000 copies of itself, you know, so that you get the army to go and swarm around your body and go through all your tissues and look for stuff and hopefully kill it. And, uh, and so, so they can do that to cancer as well. So your innovation was the antibody, right? Well, it was to figure out people had understood that process, you know, T cells recognize, they expand, they do their function, they contract, you know, most of them die, and then you end up with some that are there for the rest of your life. I mean, that's the really cool thing about the immune system is because once it develops, you've got it for the rest of your life in these renewing T cells. The key is nobody really understand what started it. They thought it was just a switch, you know, you flip it. And, and so in 1982, we worked out the structure of the antigen receptor, which is the molecule it's like the ignition switch in the car. It's that thing that there's, you know, tens of millions of different ones in your body. And people thought, well, you just flip that and that's it. So the people that have been trying for decades to vaccinate people and failed, hundreds of failed trials just trying to vaccinate it. Because, you know, they really didn't appreciate that you can't just, there is no single switch. You just flip and it takes off. Turns out there's a gas pedal. It, you know, there's another signal that it's a way of keeping you safe, you know, from T cells getting activated when they oughtn't to. So for the T cells to spring into action when they detect something awry in other cells of the body, they need the right signal to get them started, the ignition. And they need a secondary signal, the gas pedal. But what I found was the next step, that there was a break. This was the key thing. So there's another molecule that nobody had found before or really expected. In fact, there was a molecule that people thought was another gas pedal, but we, we showed that it was not. It was actually a break because when those T cells, you, it gets the first two signals and they divide like crazy. So you go from, I don't know, I'm making these numbers up, 10 to 500,000 cells in a week. You can't let that keep going. You know, you've got to have a way of stopping that or it'll kill you. And, um, you know, I mean, you can't, your body, can't put all the energy and everything into just producing those T cells. You know, what, what do they do? Where do they go? You know, you can't, you've got to stop that and control it. And that's what this molecule does, except in cancer, it kicks in prematurely for, you know, I can go into the reasons, but 
but that's basically what we found. But, and also what, what that told us was it's turned on when the T cell gets those other two signals. So when people were trying to immunize and immunize and immunize, what we figured out was after about the first you know, few times they immunized, they were actually turning on the brakes, not the gas pedal. That's why they didn't work because the T cell goes into this let's stop now phase. Anyway, we found out how to stop that. Just disable the brakes for a time. So that's what we do. We just and and uh, in mice, I, all we had to do was just inject this one antibody that interferes with that braking mechanism, and it lets the immune system keep going for as long as that drug's around. The T cells could just keep going, and they just keep killing tumors. And so in mice, we could inject it. And the cool thing about it was the kind of cancer doesn't matter because you're not treating the cancer. The work we did had nothing to do with cancer. <laughs> nothing directly to do with cancer, because it was really basic research into how the immune system operates. To reiterate, what kicks it into high gear, and what tells it when it's time to shut down? You know how I asked you to remember the name of Jim Allison's band? Well, now's your moment. That molecule in the T-cell, which signals the body's immune system to step on the brakes, it's called a checkpoint, and the medicine that James Allison eventually developed to disable those breaks is called a checkpoint inhibitor. It used to be that you cut a cancer out, and yeah. now... Or you burned it, you burned it, cut it out, or poisoned it. Right, and now, instead of radiation or chemo or surgery, you're trying to turn the immune system to kill the We're cancer. We're trying to let your own immune system do the job without doing any of that other stuff. Mary Jordan asked Jim Allison to tell the story of that breakthrough moment when he realized that disabling the brakes on the immune system with an antibody had the potential to revolutionize cancer treatment. I had a new guy in the lab, and I wrote out the exact experiment for him and said, go do this, which was give mice tumors, inject half of them with this antibody we had made, and the other one's not, you know. And he came back and showed me this data, and it basically said all the mice that got the antibody are alive and don't have tumors, and all the ones that didn't get it are dead. And they died of these big tumors. And, but there was a lot of data missing from the middle. I just said, no, no, this can't be right. You know, this can't, this is impossible. We're just messing with one molecule out of everything that's going on. How much time passed when, from the injection to when? About two weeks. 10 days, two weeks, something like that. That's Did how you secretly think maybe it could work, but you said no, it, it couldn't be? It was well, it, that experiment, unfortunately, I didn't watch it all the way through. He just showed me the results at the end. I just said, you know, I started asking him some questions he could answer. But anyway, I said, you got to do this again, first of all. If it's a really important experiment like that, he shouldn't have been the one. He should have known what was in the mice, you know. You, you should blind it, you know. Somebody else should read. But this one, you know, you didn't need statistics, you didn't, I mean, they were all dead or they were all alive, you know, I mean, there was no question about little differences, I mean. So he did it again? Well, no, he said, I said, you, I said, you know, you gotta, you gotta do this again, and, and uh, he said, well, it's Thanksgiving, and I'm gonna go see my girlfriend in Europe, and it takes a long time, and I said, no, 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 this is potentially <laughs> the biggest thing that, I mean, this result is the most spectacular thing I've ever seen. And this is not going to wait till February. So here's what we're going to do. You're going to go set up the experiment, and then you go do whatever you want to do. 
and you just show me where the mice are housed and the numbers, and that's it. I'll take, I'll take care of it from now. I'll go measure the tumors. I'll go weigh the mice, get the calipers, measure the tumors. I'll do all that. And this lab is where? Berkeley. This is in Berkeley. And so every day you went in and looked at the every, mice? Every other day. And, and, uh, but anyway, I started from the start checking them, though, every couple of days. And I couldn't tell the difference. And I was beginning to get really bummed, you know, because I thought, how did he, how did he screw this up? You know, because the tumors were getting pretty big. And, you know, I didn't know what was what, except that everybody's the same, you know. And then uh, I think it was Christmas or something, and I thought, I don't want, my family's visiting, I don't want to be depressed, so I skipped a couple of readings, you know, which, you know, you're not supposed to do, but, you know. And, but then I went in, and clearly some of the mice, you know, the tumors had stopped. You know, I thought, huh. You know, and then I got back on schedule, was in there every 48 hours, and sure enough, and did you know then how big this Pretty was? much at that point, I said, okay. And then we said, but then it's like, oh, is it just this tumor? Oh, is it just this kind of mouse? Oh, is it? So how many more? Uh, we spent two years doing every mouse model we could find, every kind of mouse. And they didn't all work, but they all worked if we added something to them. You know, we had a little chemo, and we just did a lot of messing around. And Those then, two years must have been very exciting. Yeah, except that I was trying to convince a company to do it, but we're, you know, they wouldn't do it. They say, oh, anybody can cure cancer in mice, or immunotherapy will never work. Works in mice, never work in humans. So nobody, all that time I was trying to find somebody to help us get it into humans, and they just, nobody was interested. Jim Allison was not about to give up, though. He knew he was onto something big, really, really big. And he'd come across a lot of detractors before. You, you've said, if somebody tells me I can't do something, I don't deal with that very well. Yeah, yeah. They said the immune system will never work. I said, well, you haven't done it right. <laughs> you know, you don't, I mean, I didn't really say that. I guess we, we don't understand it well enough now to say that. But what I did know was that the way that other people were doing it, I said, it's promising, it's a way of buying time. There's nothing wrong with making people's tumors disappear for six weeks, six months, a year. But if you know it's going to come back, that's not satisfying. But who is telling you, you know, you're foolish to be pursuing that? Most everybody. I went to, uh, I was invited in 2006. There's just, you know, the mecca of cancer research for a long time, Cold Spring Harbor. Um, and, you know, Jim Watson's, the labs there, they had a big cancer meeting periodically, you know, where everybody gets together, it's summit on cancer. Jim Watson, as in Dr. James Watson, the person who identified with Francis Crick the double helix structure of DNA. So one year I was invited to give one of the opening talks, and I thought, wow, they're going to listen to me. And so I was talking to some of my friends, you know, and they said, I'm not going to listen to you, Jim. They hate this stuff, you know, and they, they start naming off this guy, this guy, this guy, this guy. They're going to be sitting in the front row, and they hate this immunology stuff. Those other scientists, the ones in the front row, they were mostly working on another approach to treating cancer, one that uses small molecules to block the growth and spread of mutated cells. That idea works, and it's correct, except that cells have more than one mutation. They could have hundreds of mutations per cell. So you go after one and there'll be another one that'll pop up and then your drug doesn't work and then you gotta do it again. And then by then the tumor, you know, they're genomically unstable 
and you, you'll never cure cancer that way. What does um, resistance feel like when you're working on something and you think, hey, I think this is promising and, you know, immunotherapy is the way to go. How does it manifest? Do they mock you in other peer articles or do they just hiss yeah, the sometimes the at the Yeah, sometimes. At about that time, I'd submitted an article. Actually, it was right at that time, as a matter of fact. Anyway, I sent it in and they were came back into review. I told him it was going to have attitude because I want to contrast what we're trying to do with what everybody else is trying to do. And, but make it a scientific case for what you guys do and works to some extent, but it'll never be curative, whereas what we're doing can be. And here the, you know. But anyway, I got two reviews back and they were pretty good. But I had a friend on the editorial board. He said, how'd you like the reviews for your, and it was accepted, you know. How'd you like the reviews? I said, they were fine, why? And he said, what do you mean they were fine? I said, they were fine. They were, I mean, they had good, creative. He said, but how many did you get? I said, two. And he said, well, there were three, though. I said, what did the third one say? He said, well, it said that immunotherapy was crap, it always been crap, and we should never waste any pages on this anymore in our journal. It always failed, it was never going to work. And so they shouldn't even publish your paper at all just for that reason. <laughs> <laughs> what was your reaction? Well, I mean, I, you know, I couldn't complain too much because apparently the editor just threw that one away and published it anyway, you know, because that wasn't a particularly helpful review. But no, but seriously, did that you ever needed, talk to the person that wrote that? No, I don't know who wrote that. But at this particular meeting, I was warned, you know, and, and then it, sure enough, when I looked at the program, I was the only immunologist speaking. When I looked at the attendees list, I was the only immunologist at the meeting, and I was sure from what people told me, because I didn't know these guys well, that, you know, he told me we're going to be on the front row, who were, by the way, on the front row, and, uh, you know, and uh, I thought they're going to kill me and barbecue me or something. I can't, you know, this is, this is not good. And, uh, so I really went to more trouble for that presentation I ever have where I just, you know, I went out and I said, I know you guys think that this is all a bunch of snake oil and it's never going to work, but please just suspend your disbelief for a few moments and give me a chance to talk to you about this mechanism of what regulates immune responses. So I went through and showed them, you know, what they're used to is the molecules and how you, you know, can manipulate it and all this, and then went into the clinical data. And so the next day, Jim Watson, you know, came up to me and says, Jim, you almost convinced me the immune system does something, has some. He was, was a wow. giant. Wow. He's a giant. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I said, almost on the way, you know. But it turned out he's been, he's a big supporter now. I've talked to him a lot. James Watson is certainly not the only skeptic who's come around to appreciate the immunotherapy approach. James Allison's success is undeniable. How many doctors or people are now using what you, kind of your advancement in the fighting in cancer? Oh, there's hundreds of thousands of patients that have been treated. I don't know, I mean, there's tens of, I mean, everybody uses it. The first human patients to participate in a drug trial using James Allison's treatment had melanoma, skin cancer. And that was for a number of reasons. One, because it was well established that T cells try to kill melanoma. That's not true of all other tumors, by the way, but it is the case with melanoma. And the problem is that the T cells step on the brakes before they can finish the job. With Jim Allison's innovation to disable the brakes, the prognosis for melanoma patients 
has drastically changed. The first drug to get tested, which is now in widespread use, is a mouthful. It's called ipilimumab, or its brand name, Yervoy. You know, if you were diagnosed, or we started this work, if you were diagnosed with stage four melanoma, the, the median life expectancy, being 50% of people would be dead within seven months. And there wasn't any drug that had ever prolonged that at all. You know, my my own brother child. died at 37 with melanoma, yeah. and they, there was nothing. There There's was nothing. nothing then, and that was 25 years ago. Yeah. But today... Well, when we went into the first trial, and uh, let's see, they, I mean, I was still consulting with the company that was doing this, but was, I mean, it was, I, I mean, I was part of the group, I guess, but it wasn't me, obviously, doing it. But, but anyway, there were 14, seven, no, 17 people, I think, in the first trial. Three of them, their tumor shrank. One woman... Um, had been given a few months to live, and she was one of the first, you know, to get the drug in a safety trial. Uh, her tumors went completely away within about three months. That was in 2001, and she's still alive. I, I saw, I met her in 2011 when she came in for her first decade checkup. But the follow-up since then, and there's thousands and thousands of people now that have been treated. And there's a study with uh, 10 years follow-up, and if you get a single round of treatment with the drug, and you've got melanoma, you've got a little over 20% chance of being alive 10 years plus later. And it just flattened, and nobody dies after about three years. Essentially, nobody of melanoma. A second checkpoint drug came along several years later, and it's looking even more promising. But is it a cure, Mary Jordan asked? Can cancer be cured? Well, it depends on how you define cure. I mean, this is very difficult and, you know, contentious and controversial word. It's used too freely sometimes, and it's used... Well, know, when, to, when will it stop being the deadly disease? Well, you can, you know, that, that's an excellent question. I think, but let's, let's break it down. So melanoma right now, the data that we have says that somewhere approaching 60%, well over half of patients are likely to live a decade or more after they're treated. I think that's a cure. You can't call it a cure, you know, until the first five years or so. Technically, you can't, a lot of people say you can't ever say people are cured of their cancer until, until you know that there's not a single cancer cell in your body. That's an impossible criteria and I think it's a disservice to the patients because I know patients now, uh, quite a number, that are three, four, five years old. Their tumors have all gone away, and the doctors say, you've got a manageable disease. You've got a chronic disease. But that's not very comforting to the patients, I can tell you that. But that's fine, I mean, until we get data. But now we know, as I said, the studies of, fi of thousands of patients, the statistics show that after about three years, essentially nobody dies of melanoma. And so I think after five, six, seven years, you can tell the people, you're cured, go on about it. And I don't care if they've got a spot on their CAT scan, you know. People say, well, there's still a sign on a CAT scan, which is the, you know, the gold standard, except that if you go and biopsy those, they're not cancer, they're scar tissue where the war was fought. What about breast you know? cancer? So breast many cancer is not, there's beginning to be some responses, but it hasn't responded as well. That's why I say we can't. You know, melanoma is the farthest along now. What else? Melanoma? Kidney, 
bladders doing very well, lungs doing pretty well. Hodgkin's lymphoma, people with a certain mutation, the response rate's 80 percent. You know, it's, so it's, millions and millions of people that would have died 25 years ago are not now. Well, potentially, yeah. I don't. I, it's hard. For, I can't even get numbers on how many have been treated, but it's in the it's in the hundreds of thousands of now. Some cancers we can cure a lot of the people. We'll never, I don't think, cure all cancer. I think that what is happening though is that for the fir for the first time, by the way, you know the the pillars of cancer therapy for you know ever have been first surgery you know cut it out then radiation came along historically and then chemotherapy starting in the 50s and getting better with the genomic things those all you know work to some extent in some cancers they've got a lot of particularly radiation and chemo have a lot of toxicities associated with them a lot so does the immunotherapy but it's a lot less but what I make is now we got four pillars of cancer therapy when you add immunology. And the cool thing about it is it can be used with all of the others. The future, he believes, will be in figuring out the right combination of chemo or radiation and immunotherapy in the right ratio for the right tumor. That's what he is working on with his wife, Padmini Sharma, another very prominent cancer researcher. And just a side note, in case you're wondering, they'd been working together for quite a while before he popped the question, as only a scientist might. Finally one day I said, you know, nobody else can stand us because all we do is talk about T-cells all the time, so we might as well get married. She said, oh yeah, okay. <laughs> That's kind of the way it went. Tim Allison and Padmini Sharma run a lab together called the Immunotherapy Platform at the MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston. They have a third partner, by the way, who's also the keyboard player for the checkpoints. And I should probably mention here, if it's not clear, that Jim Allison is not a physician. He studied biochemistry, and he has a Ph.D., but... But all, all the medicine stuff, I mean, I just learned it. You know, I, I, I was interested in science, and, and my father wanted me to be a doctor, so I started as pre-med. But then he took organic chemistry, which he thought would be about the beauty of building compounds by knowing the rules of structure. Instead, it was all memorization, and it did him in. What he later learned was that they teach it that way intentionally for medical students. I finally figured out that what a physician has to do is get all these facts and get them in their head so that they see a patient, they can look at what's going on, you know, see how the patient presents, what symptoms, et cetera, know the different options and downsides, et cetera, et cetera, and bring them to bear on that patient. And they better be right, because if they're wrong, you know, the least that'll happen is they won't help them, and they might hurt them. But it took me a while to really figure it out, but science is very different. A scientist, you're supposed to be wrong. You know, because you're supposed to ask a question nobody knows the answer to, and then try to answer it. And if you get the right answer, it's probably a stupid question. You know, it's probably a not very interesting question. And so, the harder the question, the more you're going to be wrong in trying to answer it. I, I would rather go where, you know, I don't know exactly what's over there. You know, I mean, that's just the way I've done science. It's, it's risky, but I think that's how the that's how the big findings are made. 
and the tough question Jim Allison has been asking since 1982 is, what are the earliest signals, the precise mechanisms that urge a T-cell to go from sitting there doing nothing to killing tumor cells? What starts that process? He's still working on that question almost 40 years later, though alongside the trash heap of wrong answers, he's found some very right ones. Do you think because cancer has taken so much from you, so many close family members, that somehow this is more personal, your, your work? Yeah, I think it's, it's gotten that way. As I, said, as I said, it was kind of always there, you know, because of my mother, my uncles, but but uh, it, it, was, it was sort of underneath everything. You know, I knew that's what I was gonna do, but I was gonna go at it at an angle. Now I just wanna go directly into its face. If his personal run-ins with cancer weren't enough motivation, he's now had a decade of run-ins with people whose lives he has saved. A pretty rare and gratifying honor for a research scientist. He recounts the first time it happened. In 2006, I guess, which was well after the phase, the initial phase one that showed that it worked, you know, that we were on the right track and there were the tumors just melted, you know, uh, complete responses. I mean, that's what the story's about. The whole tumor goes away everywhere in the body, everything. If it's a complete response, I mean, that's the definition. And um, so we saw a lot of that, but, but you know, it wasn't, you, there's certain, you have to do the studies proper ways, but all these, to get registration, but just while there was exploratory stuff, um, there was this one woman that I met. Uh, she was 22 years old, and her name was Sharon Belvin. She allows me to talk about this. In fact, she encourages it because she. But anyway, she was 22, just finished college, was engaged, started feeling tired, and turned out she didn't have the typical kind of melanoma, you know, but. Her brain and her lungs were riddled with it. She had 32, I think, lung metastases and a centimeter and a half tumor in her brain. And, uh, you know, so she went to Sloan Kettering. Jed Walchuk was her physician there who was part, I worked with him a lot. Um, anyway, she had a miraculous study, you know, had just gotten engaged and so they told her there's nothing, you know, we'll try some stuff, but. They said it was experimental? Yeah, and so she decided yeah, she to go ahead. She had nothing to lose, right? Yeah, so they went, ahead, they went ahead and got married, you know. I mean, right when she was starting chemo and stuff, anyway, she failed once, she failed this. She failed everything they threw at it and finally said, you know, we're done. Hospice, you know, you've just got a few months, but you know, you qualify for this trial of this new drug, ipilimumab. It took Sharon Belvin three or four months to respond to the drug. She was coming back in for a checkup after this treatment, and, you know, she had scans, and the pathologist called him and said, I think there's a mistake here because she doesn't have any cancer, and I compared that, compared that with her previous visit, and she had 31 lung mats, and the brain, and it's all gone. And, uh... So Jed was really happy and called her and, and she came, showed up at you know, his clinic with you know, her parents, her husband. And then Jed was really excited, said, well, the guy that developed it's here, you wanna meet him? And she said, yeah. And so he calls me, you know, and he says, hey, Jim, come to the clinic. I said, hey, Jed, I'm, 
come on, I'm busy. And he said, no, no, come on. My office is in the labs in Upper East, you know. In New York City. New York City, and the outpatient clinic was 20 blocks away or something and so on. I said, okay, I'll go, it's a nice day. And walked down there. Anyway, I walked in and there were these people in the room and this woman, she's very big, she, she's taller than I am, whatever, she grabbed me and picked me out. And she worked out a lot. I mean, she always crushed my ribs, it was amazing. And, but her husband was there and everybody started crying, you know, hugging. What'd you do? And start crying and anyway, it was just amazing. That was my first encounter. I was walking back to the lab thinking, Jesus, you know, I cure the mice all the time, but they bite me and pee on me, you know, and they don't care. And of course, I gave it to them in the first place, so I guess. What does it feel like to melt away tumors and, and allow people to live? I don't, I don't know. It's, it's hard to say. I don't know. I mean, that's what it's all about, though, at the end of the day. But she went on, you know. I mean, I, I've kept in touch with her 14 years now. and uh, But she taught me a lot about the other side of it, you know, a lot about this thing about chronic disease, and, you know. Because she doesn't, you know, she... But anyway, her doctor said it's not a good idea for you to have children, you know. She's 24, 25. She said, what? You know? Screw melanoma, I'm gonna have kids anyway, you know. And so she's got two kids now. And, wow. Uh, she, went, she actually went to Stockholm. In other words, she joined him when he went to receive the Nobel Prize, which he shared, by the way, with a Japanese scientist named Tasuku Hanjo. Rumors had been swirling for several years that James Allison would win. His name had even appeared in betting magazines that give gambling odds for Nobels. Who knew? When his turn finally came in 2018, he was at a hotel at a conference his wife was attending. Most Nobel call stories are pretty similar, but this one had a glitch. At about 7 in the morning, the phone rang, but it was not the Nobel committee. It was his son. And he said, Dad, Dad, you won the Nobel Prize. I said, what? Somehow they didn't have my right number or something, the Nobel Committee. But my son got up early and watched the press conference. Oh my gosh, so you didn't actually get a call. They even announced on TV, apparently, that they were having trouble finding me and <laughs> they were worried that I was sick or died or something. You know? About an hour later, with the help of a PR person from the MD Anderson Center where he works, they reached him. And what did they say on the phone? Nice thing he said was, you know, we've given a lot about understanding cancer and all this. It's really good to give a prize for advances in treating cancer for the first time in a long and time. And when you hung up the phone, what to do? Well, there were about 12 bottles of champagne in the room at the time, so I think I just had another glass of champagne. And, uh, Does it change your life to win a big prize like that? A, a lot. Yeah, I mean, in mostly mostly good ways, but there was for a week or two it was difficult for me to get to my office in the morning because people would line up. Everybody wanted a selfie. Ah, Nobel prizes in the age of social media. Dr. Allison is now also the subject of a feature-length documentary called James Allison Breakthrough. It's narrated by Woody Harrelson and has music by, guess who, 
Mickey Raphael, harmonica player for Willie Nelson. Oh, and it's rocking 92% on Rotten Tomatoes. Our interview with James Allison was conducted by The Washington Post's Mary Jordan. Mary also interviewed trailblazer Steve Rosenberg of the National Cancer Institute for his episode of What It Takes. You can listen to that and all our episodes wherever you go to fulfill your podcast desires. Stay healthy, be well, and keep listening. I'm Alice Winkler, and this is What It Takes from the Academy of Achievement. What It Takes is funded by the Catherine B. Reynolds Foundation. Thanks to them, and thanks to you for listening.